The Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Checkpoint Software Technologies and Swish Data. Stay tuned for their message on cloud security. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Defense Department's Joint Artificial Intelligence Center has a new survey that will help identify potential partnerships between government and industry. Lieutenant Commander Arlo Abramson says he wants input from private tech personnel. FedScoop reports that Jake wants to maximize the potential for partnerships in AI. The Federal Procurement Data Systems Report functions will be the next acquisition function to move the General Services Administration's beta.sam.gov site. GSA says if you create and run a report at least once before this Friday, it will move to beta.sam.gov automatically. Federal Times reports GSA says the transition will be complete by the end of March. The Space Force is hiring. The Air Force now has several job postings for GS-12 and above jobs on the federal hiring website. Federal Times reports the Space Force is searching for program analysts and HR specialists. Thrift Savings Plan participants can now make catch-up contributions they couldn't make before. The new process will automatically tell participants if they're eligible to make the contributions in the future, too. Kim Weaver is Director of External Affairs at the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board. It's great to see you, my friend. Thanks for coming back. We were joking before we went on the air that this doesn't have anything to do with the condiment catch-up. It doesn't. No mustard is involved either. All right, terrific. So what is a catch-up contribution, and what does it allow a participant to do? A catch-up contribution is something that once you turn turn 50, the tax code says you can begin contributing over and above the normal limit. So for 2020, the normal limit is $19,500. The catch-up contribution is $6,500. And in order to make the catch-up contribution, you have to fully contribute the 19.5. So you have to get up to 19.5 and then go beyond it. Mm -hmm. um, but Ketchup sort of implies that you didn't do something earlier. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do that, with that. It's once you turn 50, you're eligible to make the additional contribution. Um, and what used to happen, or what will happen this year and before what won't happen next year, is you had to make two contributions. So you had to go in and say, I'm contributing 19.5, and then I'm contributing 6,500. Um, and for a variety of reasons, that I won't go into because, quite frankly, too boring to mention, <laughs> it, it would mess up. And so people mm -hmm. wouldn't be able to make the contribution things. would, And what we're doing is simplifying it. And so you don't have to make the two contributions. Payroll offices aren't having to provide us two records starting in 2021. You'll just go in and say, I'm contributing $22,000, boom. And anything over 19.5, we will treat as a catch-up contribution. We won't reject those contributions, mm -hmm. which is um, very helpful for the participant. Yeah, I would say uh, that that's something that will be very welcome news for the participants. It will. Were these changes, did you have to do things uh, from a regulatory perspective, from an IT perspective, from some kind of financial management routing perspective, or maybe all of the above, all some of, of the, them? All of the above, less on the IT for this. Mm -hmm. The IT changes are more on the payroll office side okay. because they're the ones who are submitting the records to us but it did require a regulatory change that regulation actually I think goes out it either went out last week or will be going out next week mm -hmm. um, and that will allow agencies to then make 
the changes they need to make. One of the things that people love about the thrift savings plan, whether they're in it or admiring it from outside like I do, is the expense ratios so cheap to be in the, all of the funds of the TSP. What trends are you seeing there? You reported on some of those at the uh, monthly board meeting we this did. month. We did. In January, we always report on the previous year's re expense ratio. It's a uh, 4.2 basis points, which translates to 42 cents per thousand invested, uh, and that is flat from from last year. It has gone up the la the this year last year were slightly higher than previous years, mm -hmm. and that's been driven by the fact that our agency budget has gone up because we have over the last five years roughly a million more participants and we have been spending as we've discussed many times on IT security mm -hmm. um, and so the additional record-keeping needs for an additional one million people plus the IT security has driven our budget up but as you say the the costs are still relatively low yeah before people start complaining about that I looked last night in anticipation of this conversation and now I can't remember the number but I'm in one of the cheapest Vanguard funds that exists, and it's either three times or four times what TSP participants pay. Yes. It's pretty incredible. Um, what else did you we, did we take away from this uh, board meeting? We we heard heard a really interesting. We have a social scientist that we hired about two years ago, and so we've been doing a lot of outreach to our participants, and we've been doing a lot of testing mm -hmm. to make sure that we're refining our message. Um, so one of the things we did is is what we have found is there's this group of people who save too fast. Mm -hmm. They put too much money in and they hit the limit, 19.5 this year, and it means they're leaving free money on the table, they're leaving the matching on the table. Mm -hmm. So we sent three different emails to people in 2018 trying to figure out which message resonates best. Um, and in all categories of the people we reached out to, they made changes. And so what that meant for that individual participant is they had $1,100 more in their account if they had not responded to the email. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're continuing to do that. We're looking at various groups, um, auto-enrolled FERS, for example, people who are still sitting at 3% and who are, have not mm -hmm. engaged at all. Um, again, they're leaving an additional percent on the table that's not good financial planning. Mm -hmm. So we're contacting them and letting them know, again, in, in a variety of emails, trying to figure out what kind of message makes people take action. Um, I, I, I want to preface this by saying it's nice that you do this, that you tell these people here's how to maximize the potential, but why is why does the TSP think that's an important function to perform other than above and beyond just providing the service and providing the resources you have in the website and stuff? Why is it important, do you think, to be so proactive about saying to people, hey, here's how to really really maximize this. Because our goal is to allow people to retire with dignity. It's carved in marble, it's in our in one of our rooms in our office, and to allow people to retire with dignity, they need to be making smart choices about their retirement savings. Kim Weaver, thanks very much as always. It's great You're to welcome. have you. Up next, the Government Industry Partnership. Straight ahead on Government Matters, who does what for effective modernization efforts? You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. This Industry Matters segment is brought to you by BDO.
The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives says it will close its last data center by the end of September. Closing data centers and cloud transitions is one of the biggest IT transformation trends in government today. Dave Young is Senior Vice President for the Public Sector at CenturyLink. Marjorie Sensor asked him about the biggest trends he's following now. I would say the, the trend probably is there isn't a trend. Um, we are seeing so many things happening in so many different forms. Uh, we look at what GSA has done from a portfolio perspective, from, from a schedule to the enterprise infrastructure services solutions contract to Alliant 2. Um, we see some agencies beginning to move to OTAs. And even when we use something like the EIS contract, we're seeing agencies use it in such different dramatic ways that it's just not all the same. And so you really have to understand what an agency is trying to achieve, where their vision is, what their, what their goal is, and seeing how that then is used inside the contract. That seems like a challenge for contractors to adapt to all these different ways of, of buying. How, um, how do you all deal with that? Well, it's, it's spending time with agencies and really in our, in our marketplace looking at our capture plans um, that are put in place, uh, really good ones, are put in place years in front of when the procurement actually happens. And so you see it beginning to morph and transpire and grow uh, into when the actual SOW RFP comes out. And so you have to spend that time up front in order to set the right stage um, to be able to have the biggest impact on your success rate. Do you think this diversity of, of buying strategies is, is benefiting the government? Are they getting more of what they're looking for because they have maybe more choice in what kind of um, vehicle or OTA or whatever it is that they use? Sure, I think it, it's benefiting. I think when we look at technology, the technology is on the contracts. Um, I, I, I think that they've done a really good job of putting it on there, but something like EIS has millions of CLINs. And so we're still operating in an environment um, that I think that where we need to look is into the future and technology is going to continue to evolve. I don't know that our procurement methodology has evolved and I think that's really where our next challenge is going to be. We have agencies that are embracing technology whether uh, they're looking for cyber or cloud or they're building a network infrastructure to layer applications on top of. But contracts all exist. It's the structure of the contract that makes it go a bit slow. What, do you, what is your recommendation? What do you think agencies can do or are doing to address that problem? Well, um, it, it, the contract portfolio is the contract portfolio. Um, and so you have to operate within that structure. I, I think we have a wonderful set of tools in the marketplace now. We need to be looking from an industry standpoint, from a GSA standpoint, from an agency standpoint, how are we going to restructure our contracts? Because here's what's happening in technology. Um, Machines are talking to machines, and what machines are going to do is they're going to negotiate for bandwidth. Well, our contracts are written in such a, a rigid place that it says this increment of bandwidth or that increment of bandwidth. But when the machines begin to operate at that core level, then how are we going to deal with that in a procurement? And that's really where we need to be spending our time right now. Sounds like you don't think this is an agency problem. This is kind of a whole of government problem that, that an individual agency can't fix. Is that right? I totally agree with that statement. And I think there are some agencies with deep, deep um, legacies of doing contracts, GSA at the top of that list. Um, but we need to begin to think about how those contracts are structured because the enterprise marketplace is moving at a much more rapid pace than, than our government procurement. 
And if we look at EIS as an example, we, we are replacing the networks contract that was awarded, I think, in 07, that replaced the FTS 2001 contract that was re awarded in the late 90s. We can't wait for those events again. We've got to start to talk uh, amongst ourselves, government and, and the commercial industry, about how we're going to structure these contracts because the technology about how uh, bandwidth, as an example, or cloud, or uh, how we're looking at cyber uh, attacks, all are going to be machine-based, but our contracts aren't. Sure. One of the things that we heard this week from General John Hyten was, um, or I guess it was last week, was about requirements and not just the acquisition process. I wonder if you're, you have thoughts about that, you know, it's not just about acquisition, but it's also about the requirements you set. Do you think that's a that's, um, an important component of IT buying as well? I, I do. I think uh, each agency is beginning to take different approaches. Some are taking an all-encompassing view, the whole enterprise in a procurement. Some agencies are beginning to take pieces of those procurements uh, or pieces of those technologies to build multiple procurements. And it's really culturally what works best in an agency, right? And, and that's where success comes from because it's rarely a IT or a technology challenge we're trying to overcome. It's really a, a cultural challenge that we're trying to overcome to embrace that technology, how we access it, how we procure it, and put it into our enterprise and government. With just about a minute to go, what do you think vendors can do to help government, um, to help the government reach modernization, to get to their mission? What, what do you recommend on that end? So we really like statement of objectives. If you can, if you can, if we can get the government to think through what their end state looks like and make that statement instead of picking all the recipe parts up front, I can get to a place where I'm doing something at a service level and if I'm delivering the service from a corporation, from a solution perspective, then maybe reward me with paying. Um, but, if, but where we operate today is such at a granular level on all of these CLINs, we really need to move a little bit higher and that conversation needs to be um, early in the game about what that objective is so that we understand it because what we do is we then put it on a piece of paper and we're not allowed to talk to each other. It gets really challenging then and so we've somehow got to find a way to communicate differently than we have for the last couple of decades. You can see that conversation anytime at GovMatters.tv. Up next, IT spending in government. Straight ahead on Government Matters, where it's going this fiscal year and beyond. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. government's IT spend will go up by about 6% this year. Last year, the government spent $69 billion on unclassified IT contracts and spent more than it had planned to. Chris Corneli is federal market analyst at Bloomberg Government. Chris, welcome back. It's great to have you back. Great to be with you. What do you see in all of these numbers and all of these trends that people should pay attention to? Thanks for having me on, Francis. Uh, so we saw that the federal government is spending uh, more than we expected on, on IT and it especially in a year where we had 13 cabinet-level agencies shut down for a month, mm -hmm. we didn't really see an impact on IT spending at all, uh, despite the other dislocations that, that took place in the market. And I think that really gives you a sense of the priorities that the federal government is putting on technology modernization. Um, in terms of where federal agencies are spending that money, 
Uh, we're looking at investments in, in new technologies like artificial intelligence. We're looking at uh, investments in R&D through transaction mechanisms like uh, the other transaction authority. And uh, we're also looking at, at large trends like category management and the consolidation of IT spending onto a handful of larger IT contracts. You have a terrific analysis of Bloomberg government and some of this is a surprise, some of it's not a surprise. In the not a surprise category, Defense Department accounted for more than half of all federal IT contract spending, uh, $35.9 billion in fiscal 2019. Some of the surprises though, uh, you write among cabinet level, or this surprises to me at least, among cabinet level agencies, largest year-to-year -year spending growth occurred at the Departments of Commerce, Energy, and HUD. Commerce and Energy were both up almost 60% in one year. What, what do we know about what's behind those numbers? Uh, that's a great question. So with the Department of Commerce, uh, obviously they're gearing up for the, the 2020 census. Mm -hmm. And so that, that will entail a massive mobile data and mobile uh, data collection and, and storage component. And so uh, they're really spending there. The Department of Energy, actually, the Department of Energy is making large investments in cybersecurity and securing the information uh, that is produced at, at national labs mm -hmm. around the country. So um, big investments there as well. My takeaway then is that commerce is likely to recede as the 2020 census is completed. Energy is likely to maybe even continue to grow because cybersecurity certainly isn't going away absolutely. as a problem uh, in the energy infrastructure field. Uh, absolutely, I think I think the, you you raise a great point. Uh, we can we're seeing the sustained growth on on both of those fronts. Certainly, the census will probably dip back down after the uh, sorry, commerce will dip back down after the census, but uh, maybe not in in 2020. The um, the contract spending shrank. You write by about one percent at both the Army and the Air Force. Is, should we expect maybe that Army uh, trend to ramp up given that General Crawford, the CIO G6, is saying we're going to open a cloud office, we're going to start to look at more infrastructure as a service, those kinds of things. Is that, does that foretell an increase in spending or does that foretell a decline? What, what does that mean usually? Uh, I had the opportunity to uh, listen to, to General Crawford speak uh, last week actually and He's laying out a very ambitious agenda for, for the Army uh, with its federal data strategy, uh, with its, its networking, and, and I think that we can uh, see Army IT spending uh, progress in 2020. You mentioned OTAs a moment ago, and you write about them in this, um, using those mechanisms, spending surge to $7.5 billion in fiscal 2019. What, how does that affect the way spending works, the, the mechanism itself of OTAs? Does it allow money to get out the door faster, or does that actually mean there's more potential spending because of the way that OTAs work? I don't know if there's more actual spending. I think it's just the Pentagon is shifting the way it's paying for R&D. Mm -hmm. So uh, maybe five or six years ago, one out of every $40 it spent on R&D was flowing through another transaction agreement. Now it's about one out of every $7. Um, and the reason it's using this other transaction mechanism is to increase the speed at which it can enter into uh, transactions mm -hmm. and attract some of these non-traditional uh, contractors, companies like Microsoft or SpaceX, for instance. You've been analyzing these markets for a long time. Broadly, when you look at the numbers and you look at the trends, what do you think companies should be paying attention to as far as how they're thinking about the way that they're selling into government based on what we know from this past year? Well, I think one of the, the dynamics that's going to be important this year is category management mm -hmm. and best-in-class contracting. 
uh, the Office of Management and Budget and the GSA have, have really been rolling out this effort to consolidate IT spending onto some of these large best-in-class contracts like Alliant and CIO SP3. Um, I, we're going to see that trend continue. You're, you're seeing a lot of single-agency IDIQs get consolidated. Um, you know, and then we're also going to see uh, recompete opportunities for some of these contracts like 8A Stars 2 mm -hmm. will be 8A Stars 3, and then we'll see CIO SP4 by the end of this year. We have about 30 seconds left, Chris. What, uh, what's the demand curve look like from the agencies? Are they happy about this conglomeration of contracts, or did they kind of like it the way that it was, and maybe there's going to be some potential foot dragging that companies should be paying attention to? I, I think it kind of varies agency by agency. There are a lot of uh, agencies that have their own, uh, you know, single contracts. For instance, uh, the Department of Homeland Security had Eagle, and mm -hmm. uh, VA has uh, T4NG, and I think there might be some resistance to centralize there. But uh, for others, they don't have to manage their own contracts, and they can kind of just offload that work to GSA uh, or NASA or uh, NITAC. So. Uh, varies by agency. Chris, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you back. Great to be with you. Deputy Director for Management at the Office of Management and Budget, Margaret Weikert, says strategic sourcing is an opportunity to pursue what she calls mission-driven service. This week, OMB hosted acquisition and supply chain leaders in government and industry to pinpoint best practices in agility, supplier diversity, co-creation, and partnerships. Even though business is using different words, they're talking about the same things we're talking about, mission, service, and stewardship. They're using tools that are different in some cases than what are easy for us to use in government. And so one of the things I'm hoping in the breakouts today we get to challenge is what are those barriers for us in government to actually embracing some of the art of the possible that the private sector is so agilely responding to. And things like data, things like innovation and responsiveness, things like... That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. The Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Checkpoint Software Technologies and Swish Data, presenting this message on cloud security. I'm Government Matters Director of Content George Jackson, here again with Sean Applegate, Chief Technology Officer at Swish, and Jeremy Castleman, Cloud Security Specialist at Checkpoint. Sean, you offer something called Infinity Total Protection. What does that involve? The Infinity Total Protection provides a per-user pricing model for end-to-end -end security fabric. And by this I mean your firewalls, your VPN, your IPS, but also your cloud security, your endpoint security, and your application security. What this provides is a very well-rounded uh, protective fabric that's got a single pane of glass, so it's easy to reduce your operating costs. For small to medium agencies, this is extremely valuable. It also means a predictable cost over a multi-year period, which often can save an agency 20 to 30% of their total cost investment in security. Wow, so talk about that nexus there, Jeremy, between security and operational value. What should our listeners know here? Well, as Sean mentioned, the ease of management's great, but it also provides you that full spectrum of the Checkpoint software portfolio. 
and this gives you a uniform security posture across your entire environment and it keeps we keep it up to date with the latest uh, gen 5 advanced threat protection hmm. so what about endpoints sean how does this affect or impact visibility yeah the endpoints where your users sit is often the first point of attack having the protective fabric the sandboxing on a phone or an endpoint allows this fabric to discover zero day attacks extremely quickly in a endpoint sandbox explode those devices find those first day attacks or zero day attacks feed them into a threat intelligence cloud and then inform the rest of the fabric in near real time what this means is a small to meet agency can have an attack identified intelligently at the edge and then notified and updating the whole fabric as a community. So a much more proactive approach. Great info, Sean, Jeremy, thanks again for being here. For more, head to govmatters.tv slash swish. I'm Government Matters Director of Content, George Jackson. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.